His girlfriend goes missing. The boyfriend rings the police to report it, but then finds himself under the police investigation because they believe he is responsible. This is the plot to Gone Girl. But when Gone Girl became reality for one couple, each action that they took would make them look more suspicious in the eyes of the police. Until the criminal decides to strike again. This is the case of Denise Huskins. All around the world, pretty good. All around the world, pretty girls. That's not even the right time of so All around the world, pretty girls. Hello, everybody, from wherever in the world you are watching. But if you are watching from Vallejo, California, just, uh, just move, I mean, listen to the content of this video and then decide for yourselves. But this one triggered one of my biggest fears. And if you are the OG channel listener, you know exactly where this is going. One of my biggest fears in life is being convicted of a crime that I didn't commit, or just in general, that not even reaching that stage. Rather, nobody believing me. People thinking that you are guilty of a crime while you are actually a victim, leaking your name, the police not supporting you, just treating you like you are the crazy person, that kind of shit drives me insane. It just drives me insane when I hear it in a story. So I have to make you aware of this one. Because yet again, it just shows that there are areas within the true crime that we don't really speak about. And that definitely we should. Because it kind of shows the way that police perceives different true crime cases. And also puts them in this one drawer because they believe that all of the true crimes fit certain patterns. And that's just not true. It's modern day and age. People are getting witty. People are doing things that we haven't seen done before. And we should accustom ourselves to it. Well, don't trust me. Trust the story that I'm gonna tell you about a day that makes me freaking incensed. By the way, this behind me is the book that was written by the victims in this case and by the survivors together as a couple because they came out of this stronger. I haven't personally read the book, but just based on the story and what they have lived through, I would recommend you familiarize yourselves with the story and if you want to support them by the end of it, well then go buy a book because they have really been through enough and should be supported in whatever their future endeavors bring them. That being said, Maya is the name. Gone Bad is the game. Gone Bad is this series that I do on this channel where I talk about people that have lived a normal life. They were sitting on their fat ass, day in, day out, doing their normal jobs, and one day just decided to switch to crime. And today we are talking about a case that was dubbed the Gone Girl case. Trust me, we're gonna touch about that point of dubbing the case that because whoever did that clearly wasn't a true fan of Gone Girl, which also bothers me, among so many other things here. So let us dive into the story. Our story begins on March 22nd, 2015. During this night, Denise Huskins was staying at her new boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend was Aaron Quinn, and as the two of them were sleeping around 3 a.m., Denise remembers hearing some rustle from within the house, and she remembers hearing what she thought was two different voices. As soon as she realizes this is not a dream, she hears the voices say, Wake up, this is a robbery, we are not here to hurt you. While both of them are still disorientated in the pitch darkness as they just woke up, the kidnappers instruct Denise to put these zip ties around Aaron's hands and feet. And as she's doing that, before they would blindfold both of them, she remembers hearing different voices, but more importantly, seeing two different pairs of feet. Once Aaron is zip-tied, they bring him into this closet. And now they zip-tie Denise as well. And the kidnappers put these goggles over both of their eyes. The goggles were duct-taped from the inside so that Denise and Aaron were in pitch darkness. They couldn't see anything through them. 
And after putting goggles over their eyes, the kidnappers put the overhead headphones over their ears and they start playing a pre-recorded message. Both of them would later remember two things in particular from that pre-recorded message. The first one was that the kidnappers pre-recorded that they are about to give them some sedatives. And if they resist, if they don't want to take these sedatives themselves, orally, that they are going to inject the sedatives into them. The second thing is that they referred to Aaron by his first name. But now, as both of them are listening to this and the pre-recorded messages end, the kidnappers started asking them some questions. Because they are kind of unsure of what they're seeing, more precisely, they're unsure that Denise is one of their targets. So, after asking Aaron a couple of questions, they ask him, do Denise and your ex-fiancé look alike? And Aaron says, yes, they both have blonde hair. To which the intruder responds, we have a problem. We've got the wrong intel. They thought that, that evening they will be kidnapping Aaron's ex-fiancé, not Denise. So, both Denise and Aaron, now separated in different parts of the room, are kind of just thinking this through. What does this newfound information mean? On one side, it can mean that this is a wrong person, it's a wrong target, they're just going to decide not to proceed with this, or not to kidnap or harm Denise. But on the other hand, it can mean the complete opposite. It can mean that now they have fucked up, and that they will maybe harm one or both of them, and will completely disregard the initial plan, because now at least one of these people knows that they weren't the initial target to begin with. Before the kidnappers would proceed to do what they promised on the pre-recorded messages, they will tell Denise that they're still going to go ahead with the kidnapping for ransom. So, they're still gonna go with the initial plan, they're going to give them both the sedatives, and they instruct Aaron Quinn not to call the police, not to cooperate with the cops, to just have his phone charged at all times, to have it on hand, because they're going to be sending him instructions. If he complies with everything, Denise will be released in 48 hours. If he doesn't, she will end up being killed. After this statement, both Denise and Aaron would end up being drugged, and Denise would be dragged to the trunk of the kidnapper's car. Now, let us back up a bit and talk about why Denise was in that house that evening. Denise and Aaron started dating in 2014. They were both physical therapists, and they met in Vallejo when Aaron just got out of his relationship. In his previous relationship, his fiancée cheated on him, and he literally just got out of it right as he met Denise, so he said he was really attracted to Denise, but didn't know if he wanted to just start the relationship so soon, and also after just being cheated on. He just said that he didn't really trust himself anymore. But regardless of this, the two of them ended up dating, and they dated for a couple of months, but then in February 2015, so just about a month before the night of the kidnapping, Denise realized that Aaron was actually chatting, like texting with his ex-fiancé about the possibility of the two of them getting back together. And she was pissed, reasonably so. She said she doesn't deserve this. She decided to put her foot down and tell him, make a decision. Either you want to go back with your ex-fiancé or you want to continue this relationship. So, after a couple of weeks, on March the 22nd, the night that Denise was staying at Aaron's, she actually came there for the two of them to chat about their relationship and where it's going. They talked about that this will be challenging, it will be difficult, because it will all be about building trust again, but that they are willing to try to do this for the sake of the relationship. And both of them just decided to, you know, 
sleep on it to get back together. But what they couldn't have known is that Denise's decision to stay in that house that night would have changed the course of their life forever. With Denise unconscious in the back of the kidnapper's car, 48 hours have begun. The kidnappers told Aaron they are going to communicate with him via both text and email. And that they also went as far as creating an email address for the correspondences that they can get rid of after, so to erase the trace. They told Aaron once he wakes up, once the sedatives wear off, to ring his workplace and to call in sick, and also to text Denise's boss saying that she had a family emergency and that she wouldn't be in for the next week. After he does all of this, Aaron was to go inside of a bank, withdraw the money, never to call the police because that would result in Denise's death, and they said that they have a camera set up monitoring all of his moves. With the intruders outside of the house, Aaron just sort of managed to push the goggles a bit off his eyes, but the sedative started taking effect, so he passed out. And then the next morning he woke up and he was groggy, just going around the house thinking, what the hell should he do? He was just walking around trying to see if there are any cameras that he can spot, or can he just safely ring the police? Aaron's first call wouldn't be to the police, because he had a family member who was an FBI agent. The emails and the texts that Aaron received that morning demanded 8,500 to be withdrawn from the bank. Once that's done, Aaron should check in with them for them to figure out the drop-off point. And then, after that, of course, they're going to be able to release Denise after two days. And that's when he decided to ring his brother, who was the FBI agent, instead. After speaking with his brother, and also after the kidnappers didn't respond to his message back to them, to the message about the ransom, well, Aaron started panicking. He thought he was putting Denise's life in danger, and his brother did advise him to ring the police. So, he does. They come to the scene, they don't really care much to take any evidence, any fingerprints from it. From the get-go, the tone was set. that They did not believe Aaron. The first question that the police asked Aaron was, are you on drugs? To which he said, yes, the kidnappers have drugged me. And the police officers kind of just looked at him like, yeah, sure. They found the camera that the kidnappers have left, and again, they didn't believe that this is viable evidence, that maybe there's fingerprints that they should dust off this camera, that this is anything but Aaron not having anything smarter to do with his life, but to set this whole kidnapping scene up. So they just unplugged the camera. One of the main reasons why the police was that suspicious of Aaron was the passage of time between when Aaron said the intruder supposedly got into the house and the time that he called 911. So they questioned him more about what he had done that morning. Aaron explained that they have given him sedatives, that he had passed out around 5 a.m. and had woken up after being drugged at around 11.30. And as soon as he spoke to his brother, as soon as he kind of stopped being groggy, he gave the call to the police that he wasn't prolonging this. But then the police looked at the whole situation and they didn't see Aaron's car out front. So they kind of thought this was premeditated, this was planned, this is either some domestic violence that ended up in murder, or it's just something that's completely staged, because where is your car, Aaron? Why would the kidnappers take your car? And if Aaron at any point believed that the police is softening a little bit on him, well, that idea was about to be shattered, because they take him into the police station to give a statement. But there, once again, Aaron quickly realizes that he is being treated as the main suspect because they asked him to take all of his clothes off for them 
to take the DNA of me because they believed, you know, this was a violent struggle that ended up in possibly Aaron disposing of Denise's body. And they give him prison clothes to wear in the interrogation room. Now, in the interrogation room, a guy called Matt Mustard, Matthew Mustard, was about to interview Aaron. If this guy is by any chance still a police officer, if Mr. Mustard is put on your case, ask for a different police interrogation. Mm. Run. I don't even know what to tell you. Just uh, don't accept this. Lawyer up. I mean, lawyer up in any case ever. Straight up. But don't let Mustard interrogate you, because... Mr. Mustard straight up thought of this fable in his head. He had a whole story that he was just trying to feed to Aaron. So, at first, he asked him if he was cheating, and Aaron said no. Then, he asked if there was any tension in the relationship. Again, Aaron told him about the relationship told him exactly what it was, told him about the ex-fiancé, told him about Denise coming over that evening, them making up, her staying over. He didn't lie about a single thing, he didn't hide anything. But 45 minutes into this chat, Aaron realized that Mustard turned on him. Mustard told him, I don't think you're being truthful, and I don't think anybody came into your house. As Mustard is speaking to Aaron, the other police officers rang Denise's parents, and yet again, the tone of voice is just something else. They told Denise's parents something terrible has happened to your daughter. And of course, all of the panic alarms are ringing in their heads, like, what does this mean? Can you give us more information? And they tell them that they are interrogating Aaron on it, and he isn't fessing up to anything. The FBI would get involved into the case, and they would give Aaron a polygraph exam, which they would later claim that he failed. But after 18 hours of just being grilled by the police, Aaron was finally released, and he finally got to speak to his brother, who was the FBI agent, who got him a lawyer. On March 24th, so just over a day, after the kidnapping, they ring Aaron back and ask him to go back into the police station because they have received proof of life from Denise. The proof of life was this recorded message of Denise, speaking about this plane crash that has taken place that same day, proving that it isn't an old message. And only then, only after receiving this proof of life message, did these detectives give Aaron his phone back. And as soon as Aaron opens up this phone, he realizes that the phone was left on airplane mode, meaning all of the calls and the messages from the kidnappers weren't coming through. And he said, of course, he wouldn't have been the one to put it on the airplane mode. As Aaron is back in communication with the kidnappers, now with the supervision of the police, next day, on March the 25th, Denise turns up alive in Huntington Beach, about 400 miles away from her house in Vallejo. When they dropped her off, her eyes were blindfolded and the kidnappers told her to count to 10 before she takes that blindfold off. So, she took it off her eyes and she found herself actually on the corner of the street where she grew up on. She's still sedated and trying to figure out where to go, so she goes down the street where she was brought up on to her mother's house. But, of course, nobody was at this house because everybody was in Vallejo looking for Denise. So, she knocks and just bangs on the neighbor's door for them to let her in to call her family. Her parents, who were in Vallejo now, told the police that she has resurfaced, she has been found. So, that police department communicated with the Huntington Beach police, which was closer to Denise's childhood house, and they go to this neighbor to speak with her. And they don't ask her too many questions, but one of the questions that they did ask was, was she sexually assaulted? And here, Denise would say no. So, the Huntington Beach detectives are kind of speaking with Mustard over in Vallejo, and Mustard just nonchalantly tells this detective, just tell Denise, we are going to give immunity to whoever confesses first to making this whole thing up. 
After this message was passed on to Denise, she knew she had to hire a criminal defense attorney because it just didn't seem like any of these police departments were about to believe her. As she hires the attorney on that same or the very next day, he advises her not to take the offer from the FBI that she has gotten for them to fly her out back to Vallejo on their own plane, but rather to take a commercial flight, just because of the portrayal in the media. And she does, and she describes that at this moment she really feared for her life. She thought, what if this was some sick joke? What if the kidnappers show up again, take me away again? Like, they just let me live? Like, it didn't make sense to her either. But from her perspective, obviously, there was so much fear there. Like, what else can happen to her? And also, what she would always say about this case, this whole story, is that the last thing she was thinking while being kidnapped while being held for ransom for two days, was that if at any point she was to come out of that safe and alive, that then she's going to fight to make her story believable. But that is exactly what she's going to have to do, because this is when the media took the wheel. Gone Girl was only released in October 2014, so the hype surrounding the movie still hadn't died down. This meant that the police wanted to sell the story that this is just one of those cases that is inspired by a super popular movie. And the best way that they thought to do that was to organize the press conference. The day that Denise was released, so without actually interrogating her themselves, because if you remember, she had to fly from, like, a whole different county under a whole different police station and supervision to Vallejo, so they didn't give her the benefit of the doubt at all. In fact, as soon as she was released on that day, the Vallejo police spokesperson, Kenny Park, hosted a press conference, and this is where he suggested that both Denise and Aaron lied about what happened to them. He said, Mr. Quinn and Miss Huskins have plundered valuable resources away from our community and taken the focus away from the true crime victims of our community while instilling fear among our community members. So, if anything, it is Mr. Quinn and Miss Huskins that owe this community an apology. Do you realize now why I told you if you live in Vallejo to get the fuck out of there? Just the basics proofreading the script, for example, at a level over lieutenant police officer. A script maybe shouldn't have the word community as an every fifth word in it. You know, just, just a weird guess. Like, maybe not every single sentence should have a word community in it. I guess you're driving a point across. But it just gives the bad name to the whole police department because they didn't even try. They didn't even give a fuck, like, on the same day you're giving this press conference. And it also gives a bad name to everybody involved, really, because how dare you say that this is a Gone Girl plot? Like, has any of these fuckers watched Gone Girl to begin with? How dare you shade the best portrayed psychopath out there that was Amy fucking done? There was no proof that Denise Huskins faked her murder, which is number one premise of the whole movie, Gone Girl. Literally, Amy done like, fake bled for all of us. And you, what, you're just gonna disregard that whole part, that there was no evidence in the house? Or rather, did you actually look for the evidence in the house? Because maybe you could have found some, instead of just switching off the camera and not doing fuck all. And also, they didn't have the proof that he was cheating, which, yet again, very crucial point in the whole Gone Girl movie plot. Did you have the mistress details? No, because there was no mistress. So, what was the motive for Denise Huskins leaving and framing Aaron Quinn in this whole story? Just the basics, you know, just answer the basics before you make a press conference where you say the word community ten times in two seconds. Bear in mind, Denise has just been released. She is hearing this press conference. She hasn't even been reunited with Aaron again for the two of them to 
get their story straight, to like just reunite, feel safe again. And people who have done this are still out there free. Instead of that, instead of her feeling safe again, feeling like somebody's actually going to investigate this, she had to go directly to speak with her defense lawyer. So she met this attorney, Doug Rappaport, in his office in San Francisco. And here, when the attorney asked her had she been sexually assaulted, she said yes. She said no when the police initially interrogated her, because the kidnapper had told her that they know about her and her family location and that they would be in danger if she confessed to two things that happened during those two days that she was held in captivity. The first thing being that the kidnapper was in the military, the second being that they have raped her. And here, yet again, you have to think about the location where Denise was released. It was on the street where she grew up on, meaning that the kidnappers were sending a message. We know where your family lives, and, well, we have kidnapped you from the location where you live and your boyfriend lives. So if you sleep up, we are going to come for everybody that you care about. During this conversation with her lawyer, Denise would confess that she was raped multiple times and that the kidnapper taped all of it. She said that the kidnapper told her that he was part of a criminal organization that included three other members. Of course, this videotape of her rapes would have just been yet another collateral, yet another thing to hold over her head, because if she was ever to go to the police, they have all of the locations of her family members and her own, and they now also have this videotape that they would release that would put a stain on her character, her career, whatever, that they can just blackmail her with. Denise's lawyer, Rappaport, here said that as soon as he spoke with Denise, he went to the Vallejo Police Department and also to the FBI. And according to the court filings later, when the lawyer would keep pushing for the police department to conduct a rape exam, they started delaying it. This lawyer stated that the police department said something that is the most callous thing that he had ever heard come out of the mouth of somebody who was in law enforcement. The Vallejo police said, just have her sleep in her clothes and don't take a shower and we'll talk in the morning. And I think I have to tell you that the police would deny every single statement that they have ever made, except, of course, like the public ones that can't be denied because they are on tape. But all of these things that apparently Mustard said, or like all of these about the rape kit exams, they would end up being like, we never said that. You don't have a tape of us saying that. But then you also don't have the proof that you were really proactive in actually obtaining any evidence. Using any resources to make the public believe that the story that you are so sure of is true. If you are so desperately trying to prove a point about something, trying to prove that you are right, here it is. It's served to you on a plate. Just accept it, put some resources into it, and come out and give this heroic statement that this is definitely a gone girl kind of kidnapping. Or maybe did they eventually realize that they were in the wrong? Because the day after Denise reappeared, her kidnapper was kind of getting really agitated about the fact that the police is taking this as a hoax. He wanted his work to be recognized. So he contacted the police department. The message that the police received from the kidnapper would contain pictures of certain evidence. Some of the pictures would even portray the room where Denise was held in. But Denise won't even know about this. Because finally, after three and a half days of the night where she would be kidnapped on March 26, she was reunited with her boyfriend, Aaron. Aaron would say about that moment that he was just happy to hold her, that he was happy for her to be back in his life. And also, he was relieved to see that Denise was always on the same page, that she didn't want to confess to something that 
didn't happen, that she was in this, she was sticking to the truth. Because if you think about it also, one of them could have caved under the pressure. One of them could have actually gone through framing the other one for this quasi-potential frame-up that the police has thought that this was in the first place. Three months would pass from this moment when the two of them would reunite. And the police wasn't looking into that evidence that was sent by the kidnapper, and he didn't persist in sending any further evidence that would incriminate him. And also, they were more and more just sort of closing in on Denise and Aaron. And they potentially were looking for evidence that would bring them to trial. Because again, in the police's mind, they have wasted resources that could have been used on somebody else and have faked this. But then on June the 5th, they will hear the news about another break-in. Only an hour south from where the break-in happened in Vallejo, in this city of Dublin in California. This couple was telling their police department about a very similar situation. The only thing is that in this case, the kidnapper wanted the husband to tie up the wife first. So as the husband is pretending to tie up the wife, he, when the kidnapper isn't looking, kind of jumps him, tackles him to the ground. And the kidnapper takes the first thing that was close to him, this flashlight, and just like smacks the husband against the head. But now that the wife is still on the loose, running around, he flees the house. But here, the kidnapper made a mistake and left a phone behind. So when the police came to the scene, they tracked this phone down, and they tracked it to a woman who said that the phone belonged to her son, Matthew Mueller. Mueller's mom would tell the police department that her son claimed that he had lost his phone the day before. And she also told them that he was residing at this cabin in the South Lake Tahoe area. With a probable cause, the police gets the warrant to search this cabin. And in the cabin, they find several laptops, they find cell phones, a couple of stun guns, some ski masks, empty bed that had no blankets, but just a sheet that it appeared Matthew Mueller slept on, and most incriminatingly, they find several pairs of swimming goggles that had black duct tape all over them. One of those goggles in particular had a strand of blonde hair just attached to the duct tape. And the police collect this blonde hair to be DNA tested, because in the Dublin invasion, none of the people had blonde hair. One of the people that was put on this case and dispatched to search Mueller's cabin was this woman named Misty Krausu. Misty was actually only a day away from becoming a detective when she searched his house. So she said he was kind of unremarkable, but just by scanning the area, scanning the whole cabin and everything that they have sampled from it, she said this isn't his first crime. So she becomes the detective the next day, and she just does all of the work that the Vallejo Police Department hadn't done in this case. Because she just puts Matthew Mueller's name into the system, and things started popping up. Misty found out that Matthew Mueller was actually a person of interest in several other similar robberies in nearby cities. The first break-in Matthew was connected to happened on September the 29th. This break-in happened in Mountain View in California, and here Matthew would handcuff and bound a 27-year-old woman. He told her he was there to commit identity theft, and he asked her for her date of birth, mother's maiden name, her social security number, and questions about her computer and her DSL line. His MO also appeared very similar to Misty because he also placed these blacked-out goggles over the victim's eyes and sedated this victim with the overdose of Nikel, just like in the Vallejo case. The second break-in that they connected him to was this one in Palo Alto. And here, once Misty was on the case and she showed this victim the pictures of Matthew Miller, she actually said she knew him. 
because she attended a policy panel that was organized by Matthew Mueller at Harvard a year before the break-in. Harvard, you say, Maya? Yes, Harvard. So let's speak about the limited information that we have on Matthew Mueller. Mueller served as a U.S. Marine between 95 and 99, after which he would return to California. When he was back from the Marines, he would attend college, and then he started studying law at Harvard. He graduated with a law degree and then started working at a law school. But here, after about three years of working as a professor, he started being paranoid. Mueller full-heartedly believed that he was tracked by the government. During this time, he would get diagnosed with bipolar disorder and psychosis, and two years before the Vallejo kidnapping case, Mueller's law license was suspended. He also started working with clients, but then swindled one of them and took about $1,200 from him in order to apply for his green card application. But then they found out that he never applied on behalf of the client, so he would later get disbarred. Before the kidnappings, he would also end up getting married, and his wife was quite supportive of him, even once he started being looked into in relation to these kidnappings and break-ins. So, as Misty is trying to connect the dots, she reads about the Vallejo case, and she now has the strand of blonde hair. She also has some computers and laptops that they have seized, inside of the Mueller's cabin that she manages to connect to Aaron Quinn. So she rings the Vallejo Police Department and asks them about the Denise Huskins case. And she said initially they didn't respond, and once they did, they told her to speak with the FBI unit that was looking into the case at the time. By this point, Misty had the case. She had the DNA evidence, she had the MO connecting him to multiple robberies, she had that stolen laptop, stolen property inside of Mueller's cabin, and most incriminatingly, she had found Mueller's stolen car. And inside of the car was GPS, proving all of the addresses, connecting them to the dates proving the address that he has broke into the house in Vallejo, and also the address where he had dropped off Denise, close to her family home. So thanks to Misty, and truly Misty alone, Mueller was finally charged in federal court in Sacramento with kidnapping for ransom. Yep, you, you heard that right. Kidnapping for ransom. No sexual assault, rape, burglary... And apparently the reason is that there was no jurisdiction in federal court for him to be charged for those crimes. I don't get it, but I can bet my fat ass that he did, because he studied law, so he knew all of the leeways. He probably knew which crimes he can commit and get away with. He pled guilty to the kidnapping charge and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. From the recent news reports that I could hear about how he's spending his time in prison, well, um, he wrote in one of the letters that he would send to, like, family members or whatnot, that he was sexually assaulted by one cellmate, and he described this by saying, I was then put in a cell with a different, almost equally volatile inmate. He attacked me, leaving me with multiple lacerations to my face. Oh, that's so tragic. Oh, I wish that never happened to him in the form of exact same karma that he served upon his victims. Yeah, it's so tragic. Almost shed a tear. And the newest thing that I have read in only one source, I think this article on Mercury News, is that this year, in 2021, he tried appealing for this mental health placement review but I still couldn't find if this was approved, if he's placed in an institution rather than inside of a prison. I don't think this would affect the sentence that he got of 40 years. He might just be moved, and he is probably applying to get moved and reassessed and reevaluated on the basis of his mental health issues, yes, 
but also probably because he's getting assaulted. Oh, how oh, the turntables. And where are Denise and Aaron right now? Did the police ever apologize, own up to their mistakes? And even more importantly than that, looked into this case to see if he had any co-conspirators. Because Denise claimed that from day one she saw multiple people in the flat. She heard multiple voices. Then, when she was held hostage, he told her that he is part of a group of people who do this. Well, the short answer to that is no. The police never looked into this being a criminal organization. They never looked into this beyond actually arresting Matthew Mueller to confirm to Aaron and, well, his ex-fiancé, who was the actual target, why they were targets in the first place. To sort of understand how and why did Matthew Mueller and whoever he was working with get their names, started targeting them, started stalking them, and got all of the information on them. The Vallejo Police Department never came out publicly to apologize. One of the detectives wrote them a private letter. And in this letter, he said that this was not a hoax or orchestrated event and that Vallejo Police Department conclusions were incorrect. In the letter, the police chief told them that he is going to offer a public apology once Matthew Mueller is indicted and convicted for the crimes, but that just never happened. After the new chief of police, Shawnee Williams, took charge of this police department, he was the first person to actually apologize for the mistakes done by his previous chief of police. He said that what happened to Miss Huskins and Mr. Quinn is horrific and evil. As the new chief of police, I'm committed to making sure survivors are given compassionate service with dignity and respect. Although I was not chief in 2015 when this incident occurred, I would like to extend my deepest apology to Miss Huskins and Mr. Quinn for how they were treated during this ordeal. In 2016, Aaron and Denise filed a lawsuit against the city of Vallejo and the police department, and they would eventually settle in court for $2.5 million. There's another lawsuit that came from within the police department and was filed by the police captain at the time, claiming that the former police department chief directed the police captain to, to delete text messages that were related to the investigation into Denise's kidnapping. I couldn't find the information on this lawsuit being settled, but it just goes to show that this was running deep for the police department to just prove their own agenda, to just prove that they are right, instead of just doing the basic police work. Denise said that, in the end, this experience of trauma and survival is about a love story with a happy ending. Denise and Aaron would end up getting married in 2018, and Misty Carousu and another detective from Dublin that connected the dots in their case attended the wedding. They would go on to receive therapy to rebuild their lives, but Denise always said that she felt like something was missing. And then her daughter, Olivia, was born, and Denise said that she, the daughter, filled that hole. The two of them would say that there are some parts of that story that happened to them on that night and the next two days and everything that happened with the police investigation that are extraordinary. But the trauma that they went through wasn't unique. So, they wanted to share their story and help other people to let them know that they aren't alone. The two of them worked on the book Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors. The letter F in that title stands for female, which was chosen to be in the title because the FBI investigation used that term, female, which justly humanized Denise in this case even further during the investigation. And let me end this case with a blurb from their book that says, Their story is, in the end, a love story, but one that sheds necessary light on sexual assault and the abuse by law enforcement that all too frequently compounds crime victims' suffering. And that is the case of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn.
This case just bums me out on so many levels. First, starting off with the fear of you getting kidnapped, being held hostage, for nobody to believe that this has happened to you, for people to believe that this has been staged. No resources being used to prove your story, your account of events, and in the end, this case relying on a criminal messing up. What would have happened had he not left a phone behind one of these burglaries? The guy clearly knew the loopholes surrounding the case, knew how he can get away with a minimal sentence for what he was doing. And then in the aftermath, not knowing whether or not, because of the lack of investigation, there is a whole criminal organization. There are other people out there that know where you live, that know where your family lives. Just never feeling safe. It's just like so many fears combined in one. And what I'd like to know in the comments is, have you heard about this case? And have you heard about any similar cases where the police just didn't believe it because it was so, like, out of left wing? It was a plot of a movie that was just released and people thought, oh, no, somebody's faking it because this movie was so popular. Or something similar. Because I would like to look into more cases like this just to sort of bring awareness to them, I guess, because... I don't understand the logic behind it. Like, why would you go become a police officer and then just be like, oh, you know what? Uh, the crimes have really moved away from the 1920s where the only way to catch a criminal would be literally to catch them with blood on their hands. Ah, uh, this really doesn't work for me, you know? Criminals are getting, like, all inventive and shit. No, this is fake. Let's not move a freaking finger. Like, it makes zero sense to me. Because wouldn't you see it as a challenge? You'd be like, oh, no, actually, this person got inventive. Wait, let's look into this. Maybe there's a whole organization behind it. I just have no words of how this investigation was conducted. It just zero sense. Makes absolutely zero sense to me. But that is where I'm leaving you today. With some weird outtakes about a fat ass. <laughs> And uh, after this time step, and uh, I shall be seeing you guys next week. Maya out. Oh, Maya out. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Maya is out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I start work in an hour. I hate my life. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay, Maya. Don't cry now. Tell them the sub story. Please don't. <laughs> This is a message for whoever created this H&M jumper with these sleeves that make me look like I'm a fucking Victorian England queen or something. I love you. I respect you. I didn't even notice it when it was hanging on a hanger. We, we are onto something here. Mm -hmm. We're changing the world. I mean, you are. I'm literally just wearing it in a YouTube box, so... Not to be super vulnerable, but one of my biggest dreams in life is to show up on the red carpet wearing Versace and to put the caption Versace on the floor. <laughs> First, I gotta learn how to pronounce Versace correctly. Which I'm European, I know how to pronounce things correctly, okay? I'm an immigrant here. It's English words that we have a problem with. Lord, have mercy. Before sitting down here, I was watching Chloe's video, Have Mercy, and <laughs> Ron Flynn is in it. And it's the guy that was in How to Get Away with Murder. It just reminded me of how supreme that show was. That show was next level. Just they don't make shows like they did before. And then as I was walking, I was listening to some song that was featured in Empire. Remember that show where the music was better than... Like, literally all of the music that was actually being produced by R&B singers at the time. And then Josie fucked that show up. That was that for the pop culture corner of uh, a true crime video, I guess. Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, let's check the microphone as my hair dried a bit. And let's get it done. Get it done. On a completely unrelated topic, they're gonna figure out, because this is your TikTok corner, Maya. Do you know that TikTok trend where, like, somebody in an interview said that Chris Evans is an ass-man, and then women are using that quote, like, to motivate them to, I don't know, do squats and uh, climb a mountain, whatever the fuck. <laughs>
It's like I get reminded of that every single time when I say your fat ass, like, oh, one bad is about, you know, people sitting on their fat ass, or I can bet my fat ass. I don't understand why I use that as an expression. My fat ass is precious. It's nothing special, but it is a deeply cherished part of my body. Such an emotional moment between Maya and commemoration to her ass. What do you mean commemoration? It's not dead. Is it? Is it dead? Yeah. Imagine if, like, there must be, there must be a disease out there, like an illness, where like one of your butt cheeks is like constantly frozen. You know how your leg dies when you're on the toilet? It happened to my arm the other day. I actually thought like I broke it during my sleep, but no, it was just dead for too long. Where is this going? <laughs> well, are you wondering? Yeah. If you suffer from a disease where one of your butt cheeks is just dead and the other one is reactive, tell me how does that work? Do you ever feel it? What are you on? But like, do you ever feel it when you like sit down? What about spanking, Maya? <laughs> Turn this into a fucking sexual thing. But that would be interesting to know. Are there people with like one frozen butt cheek? Why are you so happy about this? Where, how did we get here? Also, just to wrap this story up that wasn't a story to begin with, it's better if you find motivation in somebody being an ass man, because you can always, you know, after like, I don't know, squatting, doing those exercises, get that ass to like, look somewhat, you know, good, to have those like, peachy butt cheeks. But with boobs, usually the person that is into you won't be into, you know, the plastic, like, fake ones. Or maybe they are. Or maybe they shouldn't be defined by what other person wants. Even if it is Chris Evans. Which one is Chris Evans? Yeah, this is such a pointless sideline because you don't even know, nor do you care. This isn't a man that would have motivated me because I am not motivated by no man. Get it from inside. You get it from inside. That is the moral of this story. Please continue with the Gone Girl case. Never get motivated by people who say Chris Evans is an ass man. You squat for yourself, for your own ass, for you to check yourself out in the mirror and be like, Peachy, stop my emojis for a reason. Another day, another meltdown. Peachy meltdown. Another day, another fruity meltdown. It's my fruity. It's a bit fruity, bit peachy, if you ask me. It's like an impeachment in itself. Yeah, you need a fucking impeachment on the peachy.